Hello there, good afternoon, welcome to Tuesday's Richie Allen Show, January 30th, 2024. I'm Richie Allen, hope you've had a good day. I've got two very interesting people uh, to chat with this programme. Get in touch with me via the website, via the app for the programme. Let's do it then. Uncensored, unfiltered, you're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, recurring guest, Stuart Waiton, very interesting gentleman, very interesting indeed, PhD, criminologist, author, and the chairman of the Scottish Union for Education. You know that they want to take juries out of rape trials in Scotland. Why? This is very, very serious. Uh, Stuart has been writing about this and the evidence used to make the decision to take juries out of rape trials. The evidence is flimsy and unscientific. That is the, the belief of Stuart Waiton. He'll join the programme in the next hour to discuss that. Before then, Garodo Colmon, Irishman, journalist, author, broadcaster, living in France. I've invited Garod back on the programme. Always like uh, listening to him. He's in France. French farmers blockading Paris will starve Parisians, as some of them are saying. What's going on? Well, it's about European Union interference in French farming, and it's deadly serious too. So we'll talk about that with Garodo Colmon this hour on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Wonderful. This week brought to you in association with NutraHealth365.com. Check it out. Join support NutraHealth365.com. Lovely. Yes, you're all right, Jar. Great. Grand and grand. Lovely. I missed you yesterday. Nothing to do with health at all. Obviously not, because I did the papers podcast yesterday morning. I just had a bit of an emergency uh, to deal with, and it's all done and dusted. Nothing too heavy, nothing too hectic, but here I am. There's a song there somewhere. Here I am. Anyway, look, let's uh, jump straight into the headlines today. And have a look at what's making the news today. Uh, David Cameron has been speaking earlier today. I won't bring you the audio. But uh, he did say, did David Cameron, that the UK plans to recognise the state of Palestine at some point, And it would happen at the United Nations. What do you think of that? Does it make any difference? You might have thoughts on that you'd like to share with me. Obviously, Elon Musk tweeting last night that his company Neuralink has managed to place a microchip on the brain of some poor creature. Yeah, they've placed a microchip on the brain of a human volunteer for the first time. Uh, the first time Neuralink has done it, and they claim the person is doing well. We'll talk more about it in a moment. I think, yes. A return to power sharing in Northern Ireland is making the news today. The Democratic Unionist Party, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, came out and said there was an agreement now to re-begin, to re-begin, to restart power sharing, to return the devolved government to decision-making in Northern Ireland. If you believe that, I'll tell you another. It doesn't really matter a damn. You know, because they're not making decisions. But anyway, it's making the news today. As I've already said, the French farmers. European Union dictating French agricultural policy and that of every other member state to the detriment of farmers and farmers' livelihoods. And it's hugely important, all of that to come uh, a little bit later on. A very interesting article in the Financial Times from John Byrne Murdoch 
who is a data specialist and a columnist for the Financial Times. It's an article where he highlights a growing divide in the political leanings of young men and young women. Not me now. Not cantankerous, cretinous, baldy old bastards like me. No, younger people. People aged 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, right? Huge divide between them. Evidence that women in that age group, if you want to say 18 to 25, are becoming increasingly culturally liberal, apparently. And the opposite is happening with young men in that age group. They're becoming more right-wing. Now, this is a proper study by this guy, John Byrne Murdoch. He says it's dangerous. Now, he isn't saying it's dangerous in the traditional way, where he's calling for censorship and all. No, no, he's not. He's just saying, look, online, because we are being fed the things we believe online, right, algorithms, like algorithms, for example, know that this presenter is a fan of 80s rock music and a fan of a deplorable football team a half a mile down the road from where I am now. And because the social media companies know this, they feed you things that you might like to read. And of course, this happens politically as well. And that young men are increasingly being supplied with information that enhances or reinforces these leaning, this leaning towards conservatism or the alt-right. Women are becoming more liberal. And this guy, John... Burn Murdoch. He says it's, you know, in the future, this will drive men and women apart. And he even fears this guy that long term it might lead to less relationships between men and women and less babies. He spoke with Andrew Marr from uh, LBC Radio yesterday. I was listening to a bit of it and I thought you might want to hear some of it. Men and women spend, are just simply spending less time together, right? Like the, the mm. amount of time all of us spend doing things in person versus online is diminishing. We're spending more and more time online. And of course, for young people, when they're online, you increasingly get these sort of filter bubbles. So if you're a young, say, late teens, early 20s man who's not gone to university, there's a significant chance that you're going to be bombarded by things like content from Andrew Tate. If you're a young woman, you're not going to be seeing that at all. So more and more of, of people's time is being spent in these sort of sex-segregated spaces. Echo chambers, he means. And so that means that these these sort of underlying, long-running structural factors like that industrial decline are just being sort of catalyzed and exacerbated and brought mm. more to the surface. That's absolutely fascinating. As I say, I'm not really a data guy, John, but, you know, I amble about town and I observe more and more, and this may just be my uh, prejudice, uh, people socialising in sort of gender-only groups, groups of men, groups of women, I suspect far more than used to be the case. And that brings me to the final big question is, what is the consequence of this? I can see that it can be very, very hard for politicians. They're trying to tailor a message to this generation. They won't know what the hell to do. But what about other implications of this? Yeah, well, to hell with uh, politicians getting their messages through to young people. John Byrne Murdoch, the journalist, is concerned about something more serious. There are broader social implications here. So again, if if we're starting to see a, a, a larger portion of young men and women not seeing eye to eye, then of course, those young men and women are not going to end up in relationships. That is going to mean <laughs> lower birth rates, lower marriage rates, and, and more, particularly just more young men who feel like, you know, lack of... Wow. 
That's that's absolutely massive, John. Yes, this is this story interests me. The more I hear about it, the more I'm I'm interested. Um, and so, um, is this going to produce a kind of a whole new area of of data journalism, looking at at uh, sexual and gender differences in this particular generation? Is this an well, entire yeah. new academic discipline coming? Yeah, and, and look, there's that some people, plenty of people already are doing fascinating work in this space in, in academia and have been for some time now. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if, if this continues to, if this gap continues to get wider because of these huge social implications, there'll be a lot more research into what can be done to, to bring the sexes back together. Yeah, interesting that. I'd like to explore that further in the future on this programme. The time is nearly nine minutes past four o'clock. It's the Richie Allen Show, Tuesday's edition with the old gammon himself, partly sunny, seven degrees Celsius here in Salford, eh? Eh? Partly. It's actually been a beautiful day here. It has been lovely, so it has. Right, Lawrence Fox then uh, covered this on the Papers podcast. This morning you can catch the Papers Monday to Friday on podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's usually online before 7.30am, because I'm a workaholic. Not an alcoholic, a workaholic. So I am. So Lawrence Fox then lost the libel case. You, you know this by now, don't you? Um, a year, 18 months, two years ago, I can't remember exactly when, he was engaged in a spat on Twitter with some people who don't like him. Uh, some of them said he was racist. To demonstrate or to attempt to demonstrate how ridiculous that is, um, Fox went, well, you're a pedo or a pedophile. He was sued and he's lost for now. I can't get my head round it. I mentioned on the Papers podcast, libel is something I know quite a lot about. I can't for the life of me figure out how he lost. Anyway, only the judge can explain, I suppose. Um, he was sued, he lost. One of the plaintiffs, one of his antagonists, one of his opponents, was Colin Seymour. Colin is a drag artist by night, I suppose, and is Colin Seymour by day, presumably. I have no idea. Crystal. Colin is Crystal, the drag queen. Uh, Crystal, Colin, went on Sky News with Kate Burley to explain how it went down as far as Crystal saw it anyway. Well, um, it's been three years in the making, but the long and short of it is I called Lawrence Fox a racist and he retaliated by calling me a paedophile. Right, that's important. You're a racist. Well, you're a paedophile. That's how it went down, right? Um, The judge found yesterday that me calling him a racist was not defamatory and him calling me a paedophile was. Yeah, so the judge is obviously barking mad. I don't get this. So it's not defamatory to call him a racist, but by him saying, well, you're a paedophile, that is defamatory. The judge said it was more than defamatory. The judge said it was a stone-cold case of libel. And I've explained this too many times on Richie Allen shows of your, of years gone by, but let me explain it again. To prove libel is more difficult in the UK than it is anywhere else. The onus is on the um, the person making the accusation to prove it. Uh, the onus isn't on the accused to prove they didn't libel. Okay, so the burden of proof is very heavily on the person making the accusation. That's here in the UK, as far as I know. <laughs> after just, just moments after claiming to be an expert on libel, but I think it is. It's difficult to prove it, right? It's also very costly. You've got to prove that somehow you've lost standing in society. You've got to prove that the that the libel, even if it's untrue, you've still got to prove, even if what is said about you is untrue, you've got to prove that you've, um, as I said, you've lost standing in society and that right-thinking men and women, you know, would believe it. 
And I can't understand how you could make the argument that 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 you know relatively reasonably intelligent people would believe that this drag queen was a paedophile just because Lawrence Fox said it in a Twitter spat moments after he was called racist. I just don't get it. I've explained it on the papers in more depth if you want to hear it. So, so we've had a victory on all counts um, and it's incredibly liberating and satisfying after three long years of this. Why did you decide to take him to court? Because it's, it's a very long, arduous, challenging, mm. emotional ride, isn't it? Yeah. And very expensive if you lose. I mean, presumably, Fox pending an appeal, but after that, Fox will have to stump up and pay the costs of his opponents. But um, you don't know that when you take a libel case. You don't know you'll win. It's extremely expensive, you know? Yeah, I think if I'd known at the outset that it was going to be three and a half years later that we'd still be talking about this, I I may have thought twice. But um, honestly, he's he's a bully and, and... Accusations of paedophilia against people in the queer community, against drag queens. These are old, old tropes. And um, I didn't want to stand for it. I didn't want to let that slide. But you called him a racist, love. Isn't that equally, if you want to say it's defamatory to be called a pedo in a stupid childish Twitter exchange, isn't it equally defamatory to declare somebody to be racist? Because that can have very serious consequences. For the accused person, it can have very serious... Well, it has. It has had serious consequences for Fox's career, even though, to be honest, I do think Lawrence Fox is a bit of an idiot. But that's just my personal opinion. But anyway, Crystal... It honestly felt like if I didn't pursue this to the very end, that it was a tacit admission as well. I needed to I needed to see it through and make it clear. Ah, if I didn't take a massive financial risk by going after Fox, which I did because I didn't know I'd win... I thought it would be a tacit admission that I'm a pedo. That's bollocks. And of course, Gabe Burley, who's as um, useful as an inflatable dartboard, didn't challenge any of this and say, come on, will you? It's ridiculous. How could you claim that people would believe Fox? How could you make the claim that after the exchange, you were suddenly nervous or concerned about being seen in the community as a pedophile? It's bullshit. What a waste of time. What a waste of money. Anyway, let's leave that one there. But it does have, it does have implications for free speech, that particular judgment, I would argue. But I'll leave that for people who know a little bit more about the overall, the jurisprudence, the state of jurisprudence in the UK. There are people who know more than I do. All righty. So Musk then, Neuralink. Would you have a microchip, would you? Placed on your frontal lobe. I know you wouldn't, and obviously I wouldn't. They couldn't give us enough money to do it. But they're queuing up for it, right? They sell these things along the lines of some poor person like Stephen Hawking who had very, very limited control over their movements because of motor neuron disease. Wouldn't it be great if if Stephen, if he was alive, God bless him, if he could look at the screen and he could use his mind to move the cursor around and he could go in and out of websites and stuff, things that previously had to be done for him. And then maybe we'll ultimately be able to, you know, help people control robotic arms and things with their minds. All sounds lovely. Of course, it's very dangerous because it's hackable. You know, if you're going to be downloading the internet and if you're going to be having telepathic conversations with people, which is what Musk reckons will be possible in the future, you become hackable then. You, your brain becomes a computer terminal. Am I right in saying that? Anyway, let's um, hear Politics Live, BBC Radio 2, BBC Television 2, BBC 2 Television. At this lunchtime, Labour's Stella Creasy, don't start. 
Don't start. I know. Labour's Stella Creasy and Sonia Soda from The Observer. You will hear Creasy first, then Sonia Soda. I think we all have Twitter too much in our minds as it is. Seriously, scientific research is incredible, isn't it? What it can do. And if this can help people who are paralysed, what an amazing thing. But what we've already seen in America is very real concerns about the impact of this. And he's been testing it on chimps. And there's already been all sorts of horror stories about the impact that it's had. So I think proceed with caution is an understandable thing and heavy, heavy regulation because you are talking about messing with people's brains. Would you allow Elon Musk to put a chip in your brain or is it uh, or should it be left to medical scientists to do these sorts of things. Sonia Soda from The Observer. I mean, I think if I was paralysed, I'd much prefer it if it was coming mm. from, you know, a certified medical research company. It's obviously an amazing technology, but I think there are huge privacy implications. It essentially would give Elon Musk a window into your brain, and I'm not sure I trust him with that. But also, I just think this is an example of how, you know, with the pace of technological mm. development we're seeing, and it's just amazing, you know, AI is one aspect of it, but there's lots of others. It's out pacing our capacity to a regulate but b sometimes even talk about some of the basic ethics because it's amazing to do it for paralyzed people but you know how far does it go how far does it go well it goes to where you would be connected with every other person on the planet through your brains that's where it ultimately goes i can't think of anything more disturbing really it's the essence of transhumanism this isn't it but there is a generation and it always sounds like we're bashing the kiddies we're not bashing them it isn't their fault they don't know any better. Their parents have left them down in some cases or many cases, you know, by allowing them spend every waking moment sitting in front of a screen. The parents must have some responsibility here. But that generation who spent every waking moment in front of a screen, they can't wait for it. Wonderful. Think of the experiences. Your man, uh, John uh, Byrne Murdoch, John Byrne Murdoch, he said, oh, youngsters, they're not hanging out anymore. Not physically. They're only meeting online and then they're being divided along the lines of culture wars. But you're in the future, it'll be like Demolition Man. I don't say this for a joke. In the future, sexual experiences will be non-physical, won't they? I mean, if you hook everybody up to a microchip, whereby they can download anything to their brains in, 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 time that, that, that in, in a time period which isn't even quantifiable, it is so quick. They haven't even named the speed, right? It'll be so quick, right? Well, sure, why not? You'll be able to buy experiences. People will be able to sell their avatars and their experiences. Very, very attractive, very powerful celebrity women, maybe. You know, maybe, maybe not. Be able to sell themselves via the medium of, of downloading the experience to your brain through your microchip. It's all a bit mad. Like science fiction films of the 80s and 90s. It's all coming true, I tell you. It's 19 minutes past the hour of 4 o'clock. About five minutes time, we're off to France to talk to Gerardo Colmon, great Irish man. Very good writer. He's got a new podcast coming up too. He's a bit late to the podcast scene, but better late than ever. I've always wondered why he didn't do a podcast, but he's got a book on the way out too. Greatly articulate Irish guy with a great grasp of these issues. So we're going to talk about the farming situation in France and why so many French farmers have decided it's time now to blockade Paris. That's what they're doing right now. It's happening in Germany too uh, today. A number of people complaining on social media is that it isn't getting too much coverage on the media. I have to say it is. Here in the UK this afternoon, BBC News 24 has given a lot of coverage to what is happening in France. And to be fair to the BBC, which were not often fair to the BBC, it has put context on it. 
you know, that said the BBC today, well, yeah, you know, they want to take farmers' livelihoods away. They want to take away some of their land or compel farmers not to farm, let the land go fallow, you know, downsize your herds, downsize your whole operation in the name of climate change, and this isn't good. It's also bewildering to the farmers. Because on the one hand, they're being told, as I mentioned in today's podcast, on the one hand, they're being told, you know what, we've got to have food security. Really? Well, why are you telling us to reduce our output then? We'll talk to Garrod shortly on this. Hamish de Breton Gordon is a former British Army colonel. He was on talk radio today with Julia Hartley Brewer. Thinking man's bit of crumpet. Great example, this, of the most wretched presenting you will ever hear. And I know some of you are budding would-be presenters. So we like to give you the occasional tip. And here's tip, here's the tip of the day for would-be presenters. Ask a couple of questions. That's all you have to do. You know, be a bit curmudgeonly. Stick your oar in. Even if you agree with the person you're being... Um, you're, you're sitting down with, or the person you are interviewing, just challenge it a little bit. To Breton Gordon, here he is blaming everything, including Noah's Ark, including the flood. Well, he doesn't go that far. Here's the Breton Gordon, right, on Iran. Iran is the axis of evil. They are. Iran is the axis of evil, he starts off with. Iran is the axis of evil. They- Axis of evil. They are behind everything that's happening in the Middle East at the moment. Everything. The Iranians are controlling the entire region. They train, fund, and arm. Uh, not only Hamas. But, but they don't train, fund and arm Hamas. There's no evidence to support any of that. Iran has got nothing nothing to do with Hamas. Houthis and Hezbollah, but also these militias, uh, the uh, Iraqi revo- Islamic Iraq revolution. Who probably- the Islamic Iraq revolution is being trained and funded by Iran, according to this dipstick. The presenter, who normally doesn't shut up, Brewer is one of the worst presenters on radio, never shuts up. Um, you'll listen to Brewer do a seven-minute interview. More than four minutes of the interview are taken up with Brewer's opinions. She's wretched. Right now, though, she's struck dumb. This guy, carte blanche, say what you want about Iran. Make it up on the hoof. Make it up on the hoof. I'm not interjecting. We took, uh, uh, carried out the attacks on the Jordanian US base. No evidence whatsoever that the attacks that killed three US servicemen were sponsored by or aided by Iran. None, right? Um, also... The Islamic Revolutionary Guards, uh, who are the Iranians, who, who are sort of... Command- hello, Julia. Hello. Hello. Is anybody home? ...on control behind this. Now, these militias have attacked US bases over 170 times since the Hamas invasion of Israel on the 7th of October last year. So it's essential that, that the US does do something. But as you say... Little warmongering bastard Hamish to Breton Gordon, isn't he? Little warmongering fecker. It's essential that the US starts dropping bombs, yeah. They not pour further fuel on a really tricky situation. I'll stop it because I'm running out of time. I swear to God, Brewer says nothing. Nothing. Just nods along like one of those Texaco puppies that you got years ago in Ireland when you got enough diesel or enough petrol. You got a Texaco nodding dog to go on the back seat of the car. The back seat of the highest if you were a traveller. The Richie Allen Show is brought to you by NutraHealth365.com. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. 
But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse and you want relief, go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our Joint Health Supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day tract delivery. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at RichieAllen.co.uk And the main man himself, Gerardo Colmon, will be on the programme shortly. Don't miss him. It's the Richie Allen Show, Tuesday's edition. You're very welcome to it. Hello. You've done it all. Steve Hardy, Cockney Rebel, making me smile on the Richie Allen Show, 28 minutes it is past the hour of 4 o'clock this Tuesday, January 30th. Uh, momentarily, just having a little bit of difficulty connecting with the Garaud there in France. We might have to do it the old-fashioned way. We'll give him a minute to... Uh, to get online with us. I'm anxious to get him on as quick as we can so we have as much time as we can with him. Let me just sign out of that's what I'll do. Let me sign out. Let me sign out and sign back in. It's funny the things that still work all these years later. Turn it off, wait for 30 seconds and turn it on again. And it does actually work sometimes, so it does. I'd love your comments, your thoughts on what's happening in France and anything else. Send a message via the website or, better again, uh, do please download the app for the programme. Get it via Google Play, via Apple. Download the app if you happen to be living outside the UK. And it comes to pass that you are told the app isn't available in your area. There is a way around it. And the way around it is to download it via a virtual private network. Couldn't be any simpler. Download it via a virtual private network. Now, hundreds of tractors have laid siege to Paris. Farmers are furious at EU rules and the French government. Um, they say they intend to starve Parisians, right? This began yesterday. It's a major big deal. It's getting co- it is getting coverage. It's receiving coverage right across uh, the UK here today on the talk radio programmes and even on the BBC. Uh, the Telegraph has been speaking with a guy called Benoit Durand, who's a, a grain farmer. Uh, red tape, environmental policies, pushing the costs up and wrecking farming. And this is why they've taken the action. These protests uh, have happened in Germany and Poland and the Netherlands as well. Let's welcome back to the programme a friend of ours. He's a broadcaster, a writer, a journalist. He's got a new substack. He's writing a new book and, and he will have a podcast online very soon. And when he does, we'll have all those links for you. In fact, I'll put them on the podcast notes later on. Let's welcome back to the programme our friend, uh, Gerard O'Colmon. Gerard, welcome back. How are you? Hi, Richie. Great to be back. Thank you very much. Yeah, a um, lot of things happening here. Massive, isn't it? This is huge. I mean, I see people on Twitter today accusing the BBC of ignoring it. They're not ignoring it. They are not. Um, they're ignoring you. I was on your Twitter feed today and I looked at a couple of your posts and they said the posts were reduced visibility because of um, some opinion or other. I mean, we can talk about that, that sort of censorship. But the BBC is covering it, RTE is covering it. How significant is this? And is it a game changer, do you think, what the farmers are doing there in France? 
I'd say first, it, uh, we need to contextualize what's what's behind this, um, because this is probably a little bit more. It's certainly more complex than what the media are making it out to be, and the kind of mainstream coverage of this is really not going to tell you much about the main causes of it and its uh, its implications. Uh, we're now um, going through what, the beginning of what looks like the siege of Paris, but uh, whether that will continue in the next few days, next week, uh, is yet uncertain. Um, the main issues that, let's just talk about, first of all, agriculture in general, and France being the most important agricultural country in Europe, 18% uh, of European agriculture is French. So it is a uh, an activity that is practiced in half of the French uh, territory. Uh, so it is uh, quite an agricultural country. 1,200 different forms of cheese. Uh, as you know, French cuisine, French food is very important, not just in France, but throughout the world. So this is a huge industry and it's a big deal for French people, not just for farmers, you know, agriculture, because again, French take food so seriously. They are very concerned about where the food comes from, the quality, and, you know, there has been a decline in, in, in recent years, uh, particularly due to uh, EU policies and the policies of globalization in particular. And a few examples of this have really kind of pushed things over the cliff. One was the new uh, treaty signed with New Zealand in November 27, 2023, just before Christmas, where the importation of milk uh, from New Zealand will now become the norm and this will compete with French milk. So you're going to you have a situation where even though France is pretty much self-sufficient in food, uh, has it grows pretty, grow pretty much everything in this country, they are now importing, they're going to be importing milk from New Zealand, which is, uh, which is going to compete obviously with uh, milk being uh, produced in France. And that is going to drive down the price of milk and the standard of living of farmers. Milk, of course, is a, is a mainstay of farmers yeah. uh, in France and in Ireland and in other countries. The milk, what you get for milk is a huge part of the salary of, of farmers. And uh, if milk prices go down, there's always a major crisis. Now, milk is at about 30, 30 cents a litre in France. It's a little lower than Ireland, but on average, it can vary in France. Again, there's a lot of variations as there are very huge variations in the type of agriculture done or into different parts of the country and the kind of animals there and so on. Yeah. But uh, generally, the, the these these uh, free trade, uh, this imposition of free trade rules whereby you're importing products from other countries. I'll give you another example, which is Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is not a member of the European Union, yet because of the exceptional circumstances of the war against Russia, uh, Ukrainian chicken is now being imported in a very, very, on very large quantities into France. So there is no control over your over Ukrainian chicken. It's uh, it's we don't know what the quality of it is, uh, and 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 it's not needed. We uh, France doesn't need Ukrainian chicken, uh, but because of the exceptional circumstances of the war. This is the kind of thing that's going on. And uh, French farmers, French poultry farmers are going out of business. Now, this they're losing their livelihoods. Let, let, me, jump, let, let me jump in. Let me jump in there. Let, let me jump in because you've said a lot there and I, I'm, I'm going to get out of your way again. You've said a lot there. The 
I've I've seen French farmers on television translated, of course, because I'm not like you. I don't speak uh, French to my shame. And they're saying they feel gaslighted. On the one hand, they're told that a lot of what is happening is down to climate change. But on the other hand, um, how can a government tell them, reduce what you're doing or scale back what you're doing for the environment, while at the same time they're taking milk from New Zealand, which is about as far away from France as you can go without coming back? I mean, how, how, how do they think the milk is going to get to France? Are they going to wave a magic wand? Um, it's 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 crazy. Is anybody in France saying? Is anybody it's, in France saying? Well, what 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 are you doing taking milk from New Zealand? You know. Of course, I mean we've seen this in Ireland as well, and yeah. I'm sure in Britain and other countries. I mean it's happening in every country. We have the same problem in Ireland with Irish beef, uh, importing beef from Brazil. We have the best beef in the world in Ireland, and yet we're importing it from Brazil. It's 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 obscene. Right. But this is the kind of thing that's going on. I mean here in France, I think you have. Uh, also, the a problem which we're seeing in Ireland, which is the uh, upscaling of agriculture. You know, everything is becoming bigger, and so the middle farmers, small farmers, and middle farmers are disappearing. So, you have the destruction of the traditional family farm and the social consequences of that, which is uh, too much pressure. And anybody who doesn't have the money to buy more land, buy more tractors, and so on and so forth, and then huge suicide rates. So you have. Um, a major uh, social problem there as well, just massive suicide rate among farmers. I think we see this throughout Europe. But France, is, this is something as well. I mean, it's quite indicative of, of, of the problem. Um, there are currently about 390,000 farms in France, and there were, I think, 10 years ago, 490,000. Um, so 100,000 farms have disappeared. This trend is likely to increase rapidly with these new laws, uh, will, which will drive down prices. So one of the key issues here is they want uh, free trade rules to stop and they want more protectionism, protectionism of national produce against these uh, multinational corporations that are profiting from these three free trade laws. So that's a, that's a key issue in all of this. Very important, right? Um, hugely important. Why is can, can can you give us an opinion at least? I mean, it's a learned one. I, I know you're all over this. Why would the French government talk about the need for to because in, in this volatile, unstable world, as they would say, you and I would probably agree, there are reasons which are not discussed in the mainstream media as to why the world is volatile. You and I would probably talk about things they never talk about on, on the mainstream media. But um, we need food security. And at the same time, they're driving French farmers out of business. What's the real agenda? Or what do you think is the real agenda here? Is it just about massive corporations having their own way? Or are we looking at plans for humanity that we've discussed on this programme before where people are more and more controlled? You know, great reset agendas and stuff like that. What's really going on here, Garod? Well, I think the, you know, the trend towards uh, the destruction of medium as small and medium businesses, small and medium farms and so on, small and medium enterprise in general. This is a key aspect of this. And as you have small and medium enterprises being destroyed, you have conglomerates taken over. So yeah. you've got the corporate corporatization of the world. And the key objective of the elites is to push humanity in that direction. So for farmers, it just means they have to get more land and more and more land. And it's it just becomes a numbers game and a racket. It's already a racket in Ireland. Price of land has just gone crazy. Agricultural land. 
farmers are scrambling to, to lease more land and so on. And uh, the whole idea of self-subsistence uh, has gone out the door, even though at the same time they talk and preach about that. You know, they, if you look at RTE in Ireland, um, they, they will pretty much every program is about sustainability. And they talk about agriculture and there's some farmer up the country. And all, all these people that they talk about are doing great work. There's a lot of truth in what's going on. This is essentially why people are deceived. There's a lot of truth about you know, the importance of sustainability. Um, but this is why it's working. You know, um, obviously, climate change agenda, that's a different, uh, you know, the, the science behind it is, is bogus. But we, without even getting into that, the idea that you should have more sustainability is kind of almost in everyone's interest. But what the elites of this world mean by sustainability is a world that is sustainable for them. And that's essentially a world that they own. And the problem for them is they just don't own yet everything. Um, but they want to they want to kind of finalize that uh, process. And so they're kind of pushing that under the guise of sustainability. But really what will be ultimately what it will mean is that you'll be lucky to have, if you're a farmer, an acre of land to yourself. And if you have a cow or a calf, you will be watched in everything you do. You know, you, so that's kind of it, it's not quite what people think. Um, and what's happening, I, I think, as well, is that if you look at some of the issues here, uh, one of the things, one of the kind of things people blame farmers for are the use of pesticides. Now, of course, pesticides are dangerous and too many, like, it's like anything, you know, pesticides are, a certain amount of pesticides are necessary. Even, even if you're organic farming, you need a certain amount of um, at least deterrence. You need the principle of pesticides is important. Otherwise, your crops will be eaten by pests. I mean, and if you don't have a certain amount of pesticides, you you risk having famine. Uh, look what happened in Ireland with the blight in in the 19th century. It essentially, was the lack of pesticides which led to famine. Now, obviously, there's a there was a political agenda and genocide there as well. But the crop failure was 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 linked to that. So. The whole, they're, they're blaming farmers as well about uh, their use of pesticides. And, you know, if you want cheap food products in the supermarkets, then you need to use pesticides. Because if if we go completely organic globally, uh, it just won't be enough. It just won't be. That is just impossible right now. Yet that's kind of actually what the UN is promoting. Even though I'm in favor of organic in principle. I do think that it's um, exaggerated. And, you know, I do think that certain amount of pesticides are necessary uh, every now and then. I think maybe there are good and bad pesticides. Certainly there's an overuse of them. I think it's more about the quantity of pesticides. But, you know, there's been, there is an agenda of kind of saying to farmers, you can't spread fertilizer, that's toxic. You can't use uh, pesticides. And they're kind of saying, well, how are we going to grow food on a massive scale? How are we going to make a living? So that's another issue here. Um, and this is kind of obviously creating an impossible situation for farmers globally. Yeah. And one of the things that's really interesting today is there's been a bit of discussion about 
a political solution for the farmers. So you'll be aware, Garod. Garodo Colmon is our guest, by the way, uh, dearest uh, listener. Garod is an Irish writer, broadcaster and author and um, always glad to have him on the programme getting his take on these issues. He's in France, of course. He has a family uh, there as well. Young family. So he's up to his eyes most of the time. He's got a book coming out soon, a podcast as well. And he is on Substack and I will put links to the Substack on the podcast notes a bit later on. But if you look for Garodo Colmon, actually, if you're on Twitter, look for Spear Dove because he's changed the handle on Twitter to Speardove. You'll find Garode there. Look, they're saying that there might be some light for the farmers. Now, I don't buy any of this, because you might remember over the years we've spoken, um, I don't believe there's a political solution to anything. That's just my personal opinion. But they're saying that there is a rise in terms of hard-right parties around Europe. And a lot of these hard-right parties are making overtures to the farmers, and they're making overtures to conservatives, and they're saying, stick with us, you know, we'll stand up to these agendas, these um, elite agendas. And farmers might be thinking, yeah, great. Now, I, I personally don't buy this myself. I mean, you might, and it's not for me, because I get to have my say all the time, so I won't do that today. But um, is, is that how you see it, that the right will, and I hate to use terms like the right, you know, conservatives, but nationalist parties, do you think in the next round of EU elections, and even in the next round of elections in Europe, they're going to make significant gains, do you think? And uh, will it be good news or, or not good news? Or will it be irrelevant to the farmers? What do you reckon in Germany and, of course, in, in France? Well, the, the political agenda is what I wanted to address here because the reason why I said this is complex is not just the factors behind all of this anger uh, from the farmers, but uh, just the political agenda in terms of what's happening in Paris, what the, the, the Elysee palace what its role is in this um and that that brings us to kind of what you're talking about there that will bring us to what you're talking about in terms of the eu and upcoming elections and the rise of the so-called so-called far right in in europe the elise palace uh, obviously has lost all credibility and you have strikes everywhere the taxi drivers are now blocking roads as well there's a risk that they might go on strike uh, teachers, nurses are, you know, the hospitals are under huge pressure since the neoliberal policies of Macron. There aren't enough beds. And of course, you have an increase in mortality due to the vaccine. I would say the vaccines uh, probably no, no, no surprise there. But um, so you've got a lot of pressure. And obviously, Macron is a, is a formidable political liar. Uh, absolute, you know, a, very gifted in, in, in lying and in presenting and turning everything around and presenting everything in, in a positive light. So he's been kind of uh, having a lot of reshuffles in his cabinet. And his, his new project is Gabriel Attal, who is the uh, prime minister, the French prime minister. And France's presidential republic prime minister kind of runs the inter more the internal affairs and the president more international. Macron is, is currently in India. And uh, so it's Gabriel Attal, really, who's the kind of star of this show right now. And so he's down there talking to the farmers. Uh, the French government needs to give the French press, the compliant French press, something to say in its favour. And uh, Gabriel Attal is the new sort of uh, poster boy. He's about 36. Um, and he, he, you know, he comes from the same clique as Macron. He's the same... I would say, orientation in every possible way. And he's um, wrote, there is an element here of, there's a sinister aspect to all of this, is what I'm trying to say, that um, there are a lot of things that I can't 
explain. For example, the farmers have been quite violent in various parts of the country. They you know, just today they basically brought loads of uh, topsoil and spread it all over the road. Um, and in in and I think it was Campere in in Brittany, and uh, you know for kilometers of topsoil on a road, and uh, they were seeding it, and that was part of the protest. Now, what could people do? What you know the gendarmerie are there and so on. There and they are blocking roads and so on. But the there has been a suspicion that the in, the um, minister of the interior, Damanon, has been in some sense complicit with this. Um, because th this is not just the only thing. I mean, there has been fires lit outside um, Hotel de Ville in, in various in various cities, uh, very violent activity, and yet there's been very little reaction. So there's a suspicion that Atal, the prime minister, is being built up here as the man who saves the day. And the reason for that is because the farmer who was actually, who initiated the protests, uh, uh, Bile is his name, uh, he he's kind of given up. He's just said we will call off the protests, and uh, there are videos of him passing notes to government ministers uh, in a very in a very sort of um, furtive and clandestine and, and you know, suspicious looking way. And uh, there's a suspicion that you know this is really about propping up the government rather than uh, overthrowing it, because Atal now is being kind of um, presented as the man who saves the day, who uh, listens to the farmers. And they have, the French government have pulled back on the tax on diesel, for example, far, agricultural diesel, they were going to put tax on that, which would obviously wreck farming. So they're giving him concessions, um, right. They, they, so there's some major concessions. And yeah. Atal, you know, there's a lot of video footage now of Atal saying, I'm listening to you and I'm going to sort this out. And the line, the kind of media, the propaganda around Atal is that any job, this is a golden boy. Anything he touches turns to gold. So when you have a problem, like a few months ago, it was education and he took over education and suddenly it was all kind of glorious reports about Atal. He sorts it all out and then he gets becomes prime minister. This is sort of what the media spin is about. And Atal has suddenly solved the problem. And so there is a, there, there is a possibility that this will just you know fizzle out and go nowhere. Um, and that it's really about propping up the government than than anything else, because you know the the the, the anger is legitimate. Yeah, but they'd but only I be kicking the can further down the road, wouldn't they? Was uh, was sincere. I do. I, I think. Yeah. There, I think there could be an element of corruption here. But if they did, if if you're right, and it's about propping up the the new boy wonder and propping up the government. Um, I mean, ultimately, all you're doing is kicking the can down the road because this won't go away. I mean, if they continue with the agenda, which, of course, they will do, um, the environmental agenda, it's going to continue to squeeze farmers, make it impossible for them to have a business. So it'll eventually flare up again further down the road, no? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is a sign of weakness in the sense that if, if they are playing this game, it appears in many respects they are. Certainly, Atal... Uh, the way in which he's dealing with this, um, the leader of the movement, very, you know, that's very, very dodgy character. He's just given up. This was the guy who started it. I and mean, he was making videos which were widely diffused of how he was going to fight to the death. And then uh, a week later, he's kind of like, oh, we got what we want. Um, thanks very much. He's praising the government. This is not a revolutionary. So I would. 
I, but I think in order to create a movement like this, you will have to draw in potential revolutionaries. And I think that's what's happening now with the siege of Paris, with the rest of the farmers saying, we, we want to basically get rid of this government. But um, again, in terms of strategy, is it wise to just blockade uh, Paris and create a siege of Paris? What will that do? Well, if there's a food shortage, yeah. who's going to gain? You're going it? to lose the support of the people. Are going to go hungry. Exactly. Is exactly. that going to... Yeah. Is it, is, it, is it going to make them rise up and get rid of Macron? It's, it's, it's quite possible. But we have a major problem in terms of the organisation, because if you look at who's in charge of the French working class, it's the CGT, which is the main syndicate here. And they're so woke that that's the last thing they'll do. In fact, they kicked out the leader of the Communist Party from an anti-immigration law demonstration recently because he wasn't woke enough and they cancelled him. The leader of the Communist Party in France was was chased away by the rest of the left, by the leading, by the leaders of the Fr French left, uh, because he wasn't uh, woke enough. He was considered uh, a fascist and so on and a racist. So there's no one leading the French working class. If you talk about the uh, the right wing parties, the Rassemblement National, you have Bardella, who's pretty much the new. He's not the official leader, but he's he's emerging as kind of the number two after Marie Le Pen in the right wing movement and this is another uh this is another character exactly like atal in fact these people all know each other and they're from the same clique and they're i would say of the same orientation in in every sense of the word and these people have absolutely no interest in any real change so i would say there is a, an attempt to stem the tide of populism in europe there's no question about that people want populism all over Europe, they want an end to globalism. But I, like the agenda itself is much bigger than this in the sense I don't think it's like the jaune. I don't think the any of the leaders of the farmers movement really understand what the World Economic Forum, what the globalists are trying to do. No, they don't. That's so there the problem. Are issues here that are not being discussed at all. For if, for for example, the major supermarkets here are in negotiation now to introduce maggots and bugs and uh, all of these insects and you know, and everything, into, yeah. in, into the food chain. Yeah, This is going to go through, this is going to go into the feed for cattle and cows and so on. If we don't buy insects in the supermarket directly, we get them through the stuff that start feeding uh, cattle. Um, and so, you know, there's no mention either. I, I haven't seen much mention of the fact that the Ukraine, you know, Ukrainian chickens are flooding French the French supermarket, uh, the, 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 the oligarch behind this is, is a close friend of uh, Zelensky, Kosciuk is his name, he's a, multi, he's a billionaire, a Ukrainian billionaire, he actually built a replica of the Palace of Versailles outside Kiev. You know, all these things are happening. If you talk about the discontent of the farmers, I mean, it's a whole load of things going on here. There's the war on young men in general, I would say, that's one of the reasons for suicide. You know, so many young men just can't seem to find any meaning in, in their lives. And there's a whole load. I mean, the, the very fact that they're run by people like Macron and Natal, that's one of the reasons. I mean, that, that percolates down. That's a sort of a corruption that percolates down through society. Uh, that's much bigger than just agriculture, you know. And um, that's a spiritual problem. It's like what you said about this not being just a political problem, but it's it's a philosophical, it's a spiritual problem. 
and it's a problem of civilization, it's a collapse of civilization that we're seeing. But um, so, you know, in terms of the agenda of the of, of the of globalization of the world government, the emerging world government, I don't see this as being something that's going to uh, topple the Macron regime. There is really nothing to uh, replace it. The opposition, the Rassemblement National, is 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 a joke, really. It's there, there's no real opposition in France right now, as, as far as I can see. Not nothing of nothing that is a, is capable of overthrowing the the Macron regime right now. No, and populist leaders have been a huge disappointment in recent years. The obvious one being Trump. I remember. And I don't say this now as if it really ma- it doesn't really matter, but I, of course, would not have supported Donald Trump simply because Donald Trump was a politician. I don't believe that politics is the way out of this. I believe mass grassroots movements, nonviolent civil disobedience is the way, in my opinion, I mean, people disagree with me, fair enough, but I, I, I predicted pretty much chapter and verse what Trump would be. So these populists, whether it's Orban, whether it's the guys in Brazil, they all turn out to be the same. They, they turn out to be a grave, a huge disappointment. We've got about five minutes left today. Just keep an eye on the clock. I wanted to ask your opinion on something before we go. Before we do that, though, yeah, you're listening to Gerardo Colmon, um, Irish broadcaster, writer, journalist. Um, all find them on Twitter. If you look for Garoge, you'll find them. Spear Dove is what you need to look for. I'll put the Substack uh, link on the podcast notes. Do support him, by the way. This is, you know, this is really good independent journalism. Um, in my opinion, it must be said. I don't endorse very much, and maybe I'm not endorsing Garoge, but I like reading him and I like listening to him, even if we don't always agree, and that's a good thing as well. Tell me this: so the International Court of Justice, then, so they deliberated. And they have reserved, they've held off on declaring whether they believe what has gone on in Gaza is a genocide. That decision won't be with us for a very long time. But they admonished Israel, I suppose, in, in, in one sense. They said that Israel has got to do everything it can in its power to avoid um, killing civilians and women and children in Gaza. What do you think, in the few minutes we have left, where is that situation now? 27,000 people killed in Gaza. It's an abomination. I can't get my head around it. Um, where are we with that whole... Um, is, is that dangerous? Like Iran, you've got hawks today, neocon hawks taking to the newspapers, taking to the radio stations, saying that the US has got a strike against Iranian-backed militants. We can't put up with this. Iran, Iran, Iran. They're all at it. Iran, Iran, Iran. Is it dangerous or is it settling down there now? What do you think? Oh, it, it, it is escalating. I mean, there are certainly the war is escalating. There are many more uh, major areas of destabilization coming up. Ethiopia is that probably the next big big war, uh, which will have a huge impact um, because there is a major conflict there with Ethiopia um, threatening to go to war to get access to the to the Red Sea, and that that will that will spread this out even further if that happens. But on the question of Israel, the Israelis don't care whether the International Criminal Court admonishes them or not. They don't care about anything. Look, when Elon Musk was opening X up to free speech, uh, he was called by his master in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem to uh, to account for himself. And he went there and he put on the kippah and he went with Ben Shapiro to Auschwitz and he, he made his pilgrimage and he, uh, you know, he, he bowed down to the world religion and the world, uh, the world authorities. And he said he'd be a good boy. And he said that 
he was practically, as he said himself, Jewish. Um, so okay, so he's 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 you know he's going to basically keep the Israeli boat afloat by kind of um, clamping down on uh, free speech, essentially on on X, and that's and 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 in the name of free speech. And I think the Israelis will just continue on that way. Uh, they'll all the right wing populist parties or Zionists, hardcore Zionists. They've got Millet in Argentina. That's he's another hardcore Zionist. Goes out of his way. You know, Trump was a hardcore Zionist, even more hardcore than 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 the Republic, uh, the Democrats. So this is kind of the ball game they keep playing, and they have all kinds of alternative media that you know, like Infowars and so on that take a Zionist uh, approach, and that keeps them afloat. And that's all they care about. I don't think they care about international criminal court. That's not going no, to happen. No, they don't. No, Netanyahu is not going to be arrested. They're just laughing at that. Look, they they don't care if we know that the international criminal court was set up to punish third world countries, third world uh, uh, dictators. To, yeah, basically trying to um, you know keep their sovereignty. That's all it was ever set up for. It was it, it was set up to uh, the Hague is is always just been instrument to to interrupt you. My apologies for interruption. I'm going to give you the final word and we've only got 90 seconds. Um, You will have the final word on this issue. I disagree with you about Musk uh, slightly. So what Musk did was he responded to a tweet whereby somebody said Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. And Musk tweeted, you have said the actual truth. Now, Musk should be entitled to his opinion like anybody else. Um, So he's entitled to it. I happen to believe he's wrong. I don't believe that Jewish communities are pushing hatred against white people, that they claim to want people to stop using against them, because I know a lot of Jewish people, and they don't Mm. um, push hate against white people at all. So I believe that Musk was wrong in agreeing with it, but he should have every right to his opinion and, and nobody should, you know, he certainly shouldn't be going cap in hand to Tel Aviv to apologise and to be seen at the gates of Auschwitz. I think that's pathetic, really. But I didn't agree with his tweet. But I'm going to give you the final word on this. And um, just to say before you do wrap it up, good luck with the book, pal. And the podcast is overdue. Um, when, when all of that's ready to go, we'll get you back on. If you fancy it, come back on for a longer chat. We can talk about the New World Order 2.0, as uh, Richard Haas likes calling it. We can talk about that in much more general terms. But final word on that then before we part company today. And thanks for your time, by the way. Thank you. Uh, on on Musk, yeah, well, it, I mean, it remains to be seen, I suppose. But, I mean, X is still censoring people. I've been censored there several times. So they're still censoring people. They're not, uh, but, yeah. you know, they're, and they're cancelling people. So there's, uh, um, and and none of these have been an incitation to hatred. I mean, incita- there is none of, none of my tweets, I've never tweeted anything about um, advocating killing people or going after people or uh, causing harm to others. Um, so they are censoring. It remains to be seen what this billionaire is about. You know, yeah. he has actually opened up Twitter or X to to. He has improved it. It has become you know reasonably interesting again. It was dead, but you know he's one of them, like Trump, and so I don't expect anything from him. I mean, he is certainly one of them, and uh, you know if you even look at his his background. There, he's he's quite a mysterious character. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where he comes from, and uh, that, there's there's a lot of questions about 
Musk. But, you know, Musk could do great good. And in, in many ways, he has done good by sort of opening up Twitter and opening. He, like the debate at least is more interesting, but I do think he's kind of there as a gatekeeper as well. He's there to, to basically control and make sure that this doesn't get out of hand. So it's you know this is kind of what I've been saying about left and right wing Zionism. It's it's uh, this is what we're seeing in populism. It's like Millet, Savio Millet in um, in Argentina, is kind of gone out of his way to show how Zionist he is. Um, so you know I wouldn't get too excited about his speech in the World Economic Forum. You know the idea of Austrian economics being an alternative to the New World Order is, uh, in my view, ridiculous, but. You know, we 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 wait and see. But just to come back to our main discussion tonight, which was France, I don't see this yet as being anything revolutionary. I've lived here for a long time, seen a lot of this kind of stuff every year. I think it a lot of this out. is more of the same. Yeah, fair enough, Garod. Great way to um, to end it. Listen, thanks again for your time, pal. I know there's a lot of demands on it. As I said, good luck with writing the book, the podcast. And of course, I'll put links on our podcast notes today to uh, Garod's Substack account. But a lot of people who listen to this to this program, they do read you. And follow Garod on Twitter. Um, Spear Dove, you'll find him. But if you look for Garod O'Colmon, even Philistines. And on Substack as well. If, uh, oh, it's Speared Off there as well. Speared Off and Substack as well. Brilliant, Garoud. Thanks a lot, pal. Garoud Milamagud. Speak soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Gerardo Colmon live from Paris on Tuesday's Richie Allen radio show. Thank you for your comments, by the way. I'm going to race through as many of them as I possibly can. Um, I do us a favour. I should say this more often. I might make a sting. When you're sending a comment, try and keep it to between four and five lines, if you don't mind, because I'm more likely to read it then. Like if it's like 10 or 15 lines, and I understand like you've got a lot to say, but if it's 10 or 15 lines, I can't really read it out loud. But if you keep it to between four and five lines, if you can make your point in a paragraph, I will, of course, read it. It doesn't matter what you're saying. There's no censorship here. Rob says, large-scale organic farming may not sustain the current world population, but as we know, the elites wish to reduce the population. Organic farming would sustain them, and that's all they care about. Thank you uh, for that, Rob. Uh, Peter reckons this current situation goes much further than putting small to medium-sized farming businesses out of business. It's much deeper than that, as covered by your show in recent years, uh, says uh, Peter. Thank you for that, Peter. Hello to Anne. Hello, Anne. Anne says, it's simple. We need to get in the habit of questioning in the shops. Question the country of origin. Where does this come from? It must be shown on all products so we can make our own choices, says Anne. Very good, Anne. And you'll remember uh, Guaranteed Irish years and years and years ago when I was a young boy. We were told through the medium of television advertising, we were told to support Irish producers. And there was a little, there was a little icon put on products, little icon, Guaranteed Irish. We were told to look after um, Irish producers. Yes, very good. Hello to Elizabeth, who says, how is it even logical for milk from New Zealand with the transport costs? How could it be cheaper than locally produced milk? And is it even green, asks Elizabeth. Well, it's ridiculous, isn't it, Elizabeth? It's ludicrous, of course, to tell people we need to be more environmentally conscious. We need to think about climate change. Let's um, import milk from New Zealand. It's insane. And I think it's, it, it, it's their way of laughing at people. And it's their way of grinding people down. You know, it's, it's their way of driving people mad. Because people are not stupid. They know on some level. They must know 
What the hell is this all about? They want us to have food security. They want us to protect the environment. What? They just want to import a whole pile of milk from New Zealand? That's insane. Of course it's insane. Brian is in North Yorkshire. Hi, Brian. I fail to see how starving the citizens of Paris achieves anything, says Brian. Surely blockading the politicians in Brussels and Strasbourg would make more sense. Good point. But how could French farmers possibly achieve this? Asks Brian. Good comment, Brian. I don't know. Hello to Tim who says, And the drone used in the attack on the Americans in Jordan was made in America. Now, who in the region purchases American drones, asks Tim. Another good question, Tim. I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer to anything. Nelly says, I bought the Axis of Evil cookbook for my son-in-law back in the day of the Iraq war. I know, distasteful, he says, but uh, many good recipes, he says in there. Very good. Hello to Ian who says the benefits of microchips in the brain for medical conditions like potentially Alzheimer's far outweigh the downside, says Ian. So that's nice. Not everybody agrees with me. That's good. That's bloody good. I like it. Let's have more dissent, please. Dearest listener, Ian says the microchip might help people with Alzheimer's. It might do, Ian. Yes, and I'm not decrying this. I've said it before, it might help somebody who's uh, suffering from locked-in syndrome. Somebody who can't move a muscle, who can't speak. Motor neuron disease as well. Yes, I'm not saying this, it's a bad thing. But that's not what they are developing it for, you see. They use these, these um, benefits because you can't argue with them. They're so lovely. Lovely, sure, we all know somebody. God love them who's disabled and who might be, you know, in a wheelchair and, and uh, has a very difficult life. And, and this might make their lives easier. How could you argue with it, of course? But ultimately, they want these chips to make us all basically part of a hive mind. In my opinion. Again, I've got to say, in my opinion. Hi, Leslie. Uh, thank you, Leslie. You called Donald Trump a pedo on Monday Morning Papers Review. Listen back to what I said exactly, Leslie. Word for word. And uh, you'll see that I was saying something a bit different. Uh, hi to Billy, who says the same thing. Uh, right, that's it for the messages. I've got to move on. This is the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live from the heart of Salford, here in the northwest of Blighty. I'm Richie Allen. The time is fast approaching nine minutes past the hour. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse and you want relief, Go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day tract delivery. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at RichieAllen.co.uk. Welcome back. Faisal reckons, funny how the European Union cracks down so hard. On anything useful, example, gas or coal heating, because of climate change. But when it comes to shipping milk from New Zealand, that's right, Faisal. Yeah, there's no downside, according to them, um, when it comes to shipping 
milk thousands of miles from New Zealand. That's right. The hypocrisy is breathtaking and it should alert people to the fact that they're being had but it often does not. Jenny reckons what is environmental about importing something from the other side of the world, something you can produce locally. Exactly, Jenny. Last time we looked, there wasn't anything wrong with French milk. Imagine that. Downsize your herds, your dairy herds, and put some of your land, put it um, beyond use. Why? Because of climate change. Uh, but we'll need milk. We might run out of milk in France. Don't worry about it. We'll import it from New Zealand. If that isn't gaslighting, I don't know what is. Anyway, Stuart Wainton, doctor, if you please, is standing by to talk to us about taking juries out of rape trials in Scotland. It's all mad, isn't it? It's mad. This is Train and a track called Mermaid on the Richie Allen Show with me, the BBG. Music from trains out to mermaids. The time is 14 minutes past 5 o'clock. Tuesday, the 30th of January, 2024. Nearly out of January. Nearly there. Hang in there. I don't know what it is. It's like the back of the winter has been broken. This is very serious. Uh, Dr. Stuart Waiton was on the programme. He's a regular guest, thankfully. Always like listening to him. And um, he came on um, quite a few times last year, but one time he came on to talk about non-jury trials in rape cases in Scotland, which sounds crazy, really. I mean, it does, right? It, it won't matter to you or to me, because we're not going to be, well, I suppose you never know what you might be accused of. But you're not a rapist, neither am I, so the chances of us being accused of it, let alone being told to stand trial for it, well, they're probably slim. But if you do, aren't you better with a jury of your peers? Isn't there an abundance of evidence that suggests that the fairest way to do it is to be tried before a jury of your peers? Well, there are those in Scotland who think this is not correct and that rape juries are prejudiced and they have proven to be prejudiced over the years and you're better off not having a jury and having a judge or a couple of judges determine uh, your guilt or innocence. So this is very important. Now, Stuart Wayton is a criminologist and author, lecturer. He's an all-round good guy and he's been writing about this, um, often on the Scottish Union for Education substack, but... Um, he's written an article in the International Journal of Evidence and Proof, which is very, very thought-provoking. And he's challenging this idea that there is overwhelming evidence that juries are prejudiced in rape trials. And he reckons that the methodology by how this came to be, how did they come to decide that rape juries are prejudiced? He reckons that the method used to come to this you know, uh, realisation or to this uh, opinion is in fact itself flawed and he reckons it's very dangerous. Let's welcome back to the programme Dr Stuart Waiton. Hi Stuart. Are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Up loud and clear. Thank God for that. Um, 25 years in the business, Stuart, I still occasionally put the wrong fader up in the vertical position. It happens. I'm shockingly inept at times. Listen, welcome back. And for the first time in 2024, um, we spoke about this before, so I'm fascinated. Um, do you want to put this in context for listeners who might be new to it? Because it sounds so bizarre and so crazy that you wouldn't have a jury of your peers if you were accused of this most serious and heinous of crimes. Who's the, who's the brainchild? Where, where's this coming from? Um... 
Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's, it seems to be a fairly established idea uh, within academia that uh, you have this kind of rape myth or rape myths in society. So kind of old-fashioned sexist ideas, that's, that's the presumption that people have kind of sexist ideas. Um, and so when it comes to rape cases, they're prejudiced uh, against the alleged victim. And so that's why you get only about 50% in Scotland, 50% of rape cases are found guilty. And they look at other crimes like murder and say the rate that you convict people in murder is much higher. And that must be because the jury is prejudiced. Now, on top of that, from around about, well, through the 2000s, helped by uh, New Labour, the criminal justice system itself has kind of incorporated a certain feminist perspective uh, into the criminal justice system. So when they're trying to get papers or do research and so on, it's often feminist criminologists who they ask to actually do this. And politicians themselves would be, so you look at Theresa May, and um, Theresa May says, you know, the best thing she did, or one of the top three things she did when uh, prime minister was that she um, made domestic violence and violence against women and girls uh, a top priority. So you, it's, politicians themselves are loathed to, raise questions around this issue and from a certain critical perspective because you're seen as being victim blaming and so on. So what's happened in Scotland is that they have um, particularly adopted from one paper in particular that argues that there is overwhelming evidence of rape myths. Um, they've adopted that and said, look, there's overwhelming evidence that there are rape myths, therefore juries are no good in rape cases. And we want to have a pilot project, uh, which is funny, the idea of a pilot project, because this is real cases. This is not real you know, people. going to try it out. This is real cases will be the part of this pilot where you basically get rid of the jury and have judges only, or a judge, making a ruling. Um, there's an addition to that which we can come on to in terms of why this is significant, is that the judges will be trauma-informed. So they have to be conscious that when a woman is raped, she sometimes, if she comes into a court, she might not give the answers you're expecting and so on because she is traumatised. So they will be trauma-informed to understand the alleged victim. And then the judge will be asked to make a ruling uh, about whether it's guilty or not guilty. That's where we stand at the moment. That and, troubled uh, me. Sorry. A, lo a, lo a, lot of, a lot of lawyers, sorry, a lot of lawyers are kicking up a fuss about this and saying basically we, we refuse to play, to play along with this. We will not uh, allow this to happen. So that's, there's a, there's a, it's really, it's contested at the moment. So there's a, there's a pushback. When you first raised this issue yourself and then we spoke about it afterwards, the thing that did trouble me was the trauma training for the judges, where, if I remember, you discussed how a judge might be told, now, if a witness, if the alleged victim 
is seeming to contradict herself or getting her story mixed up a little bit, that doesn't mean she's not telling the truth. It might be down to the impact of the trauma. Now, that's to me, that's crazy. And and you, you discussed that. I, I've gotten that right, haven't I? That's exactly something that yeah. could happen. Yeah. That, so that's yeah. mad. But, but I'd like you to explain for our listeners, what would rape myths be? What what are they claiming? What are rape myths that, that somebody might, um, you know, somebody like me, if I was on a jury, what do they claim that I might be affected by? What rape mythologies are there that I might, might lead to me making a bad decision and finding a guilty man innocent? What are these myths? Yeah, so it's things like um, if the woman's drunk and can't really remember, then she can't have been raped. Uh, if the if a woman doesn't fight back, it can't be rape. Um, if the, that rape is usually by a stranger, uh, not somebody you know, uh, that rape is about sex, whereas the argument is it's really about power. It's not uh, uh, the idea that sometimes uh, men just get carried away, uh, and it's not really rape. Um, uh, what else is there? Um, so it's it's those kind of ideas where it's, uh, there's a kind of old-fashioned sexist views, yeah, uh, alongside sort of modern kind of views about how you how you should think about relationships in a more sensitive uh, kind of way. So if, if you thought about a kind of a conservative traditional person, you know, it's like um, well, she was wearing a certain dress and she was flirting and she went back to his place and provocative blah, 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 blah. Uh, so on right so it's kind of there's a victim blaming element of it there's a kind of denial there's a, a, another one which is a big one is that it's the idea that um are false do women often make false allegations against men right so that's another one the idea that there are a lot of false allegations or a fair number of false allegations, um, which they uh, entirely refute and try and argue that yeah. you know, there's, hardly any, there's hardly any false allegations. Where actually the research and the evidence of that is completely contradictory. Yeah, we know it's that. It's entirely unclear. Well, well, yeah, we know there are false allegations. But I'm going to take um, issue now with something you said, um, not just to make it interesting, but because I do... I do understand why victims' rights groups, um, women's rights groups, I do understand why they might be concerned that jurors, not just male jurors, because this might not be down to male jurors, but that any juror might have a stereotypical view of um, sexual, sexually motivated crimes or sex attacks. Like, it's not ridiculous to me the idea that a man might think if well if she was pissed well then it was her own fault um or why are you going out wearing a micro skirt and and doing this i mean it sounds reasonable to me that some jurors if not the entire jury now but that some jurors might succumb to such stereotypical myths and that might color or prejudice their ability to be impartial and fair and take everything take all the facts. You know what I'm saying, Stuart? I, I, yeah. I would be worried about some of these jurors as well, thinking, God, that girl might have been raped, but juror number six there, he or she 
well, they might be conservative, they might be conservative-leaning, and they might think, well, she was pissed out of her brain, excuse my French, uh, how can we take her evidence at face value? So how do you deal with that then? How do you, how, how, traditionally, how would a judge have dealt with the concern that juries might be prejudiced against such, such mythologies? Go ahead. I, I think, I mean, I, you could probably answer in... in uh uh, your listeners could probably answer this as well as, as as I could in terms of how it actually pans out. But of course, what happens in an actual court case is the evidence is presented uh, for both sides, and then you have to deliberate, and so you have to discuss what you think is is the evidence, right, and what you think is uh, true and false, and so on. And within that process, I'm, I have no doubt there'll be all sorts of people. I mean, everyone's got you know, slight prejudices or some people's got big prejudices and so on. But you would hope that in the process of that, the evidence will be the first thing, right? Unless you've got an absolute raving psychopath who just hates women. Yeah. It, most, most people, I think, have a desire to convict a rapist, right? Um, now, if you know, some people might have views that you think are being prejudicial, but I, I do genuinely think that the majority opinion will help to balance that, right, in terms of del- del- deliberation, which is what's very important, is that you, you should deliberate, you discuss, and you say, oh, well, you know, she was just drunk, so it, it's meaningless. And, uh, you know, someone else, would, a lot of people I would have thought would say, well, just because she's drunk doesn't mean it's not rape. You have yes. to actually look at what the evidence is, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think most people would come around to that and be persuadable and you'd get a, a significant majority and possibly an absolute unanimous decision, ideally, depending on the evidence. Um, so, you know, I, so it's not, a, it's not in dispute that some people will have prejudices. But the question is, is there evidence to prove that? Right? And that's the question, because what the feminist researchers have done, have tried to prove that this is the case. And what they do is they set up mock jury trials, right? So pretend jury trials experiments with numbers of people and then they show them a, ju- a, a, a case a made-up case usually uh, or they give them a sort of a, a sheet of paper which explains the evidence for and the evidence against and then what the vic- alleged victim says and what the uh, alleged perpetrator says and then they ask them to come to a conclusion about innocence or guilt now the problem with their research is it's often done with students, right? It's not done with a kind of um, a, a cross population, right? In terms of a balance between different types of classes, this and that, and all the rest of it. So it's not it's not scientific as a framework for verifying that this reflects the population as a whole. Right? Now, so just you, just so, as a kind of scientific framework. It Stuart, um, sorry, sorry, sorry again for the interruption because this is a very key point. Why is that the case? Because, look, look I, I'm not a legal guy, but I'm a guy who's taken part in many experiments over the years as a journalist. I mean, if you're going to get mock juries to observe the juries, the first thing you do is you think, well, let us get a jury that would be as close as possible, near as damn it, to the types of juries that we would see, you know, sought from or, or taken from the community. So why would they not do that? Why would they not get people of all ages, all backgrounds? <laughs> 
I don't understand. Just, it. it's it, it's simply time and money, money. right? Because if it's your, you have to think about you when when you're doing these sorts of pieces of research, you would have to um, work out the level of class, gender, age, and so on. And it just takes a lot of time and effort to actually do that on a, on any large scale. So if you're talking about a hundred people, you're trying to get. That's quite difficult. But some have done it. There's one guy in particular, a guy called Dominic Wilmot. He has done this, right? So his is better. Um, another problem with the mock jury trials is it's unrealistic, right? So it's, you're just getting one sheet of paper, right? Or a couple of sheets of paper. It's not like sitting in a real jury. And of course, it's not a real jury, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I ask if I'm sitting here, if, if me and you and like 10 other people are in a mock jury and we're, um, we're asked to come to a decision, our level of seriousness of how we approach this will be infinitely less than if we're actually deciding on a person's life. Right? Yeah. I mean, it just... It's, it's unimaginable to think that it will be anything less than that. So it's unrealistic. Right? And the also another dimension of this is that in most of these mock jury cases, there is no deliberation. They just ask individuals. Right? But the deliberation thing is really important because that's how a jury works. And that's how you get a balancing out of different opinions and a persuasion where you've got to say, well, no, 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 we, we've got to think about this, got to think about that. And it's a collective thing, whereas the vast majority of these don't do that. It's just an individual, give them a piece of paper, uh, ask them to do it, and that's the end of it. So there's so many different problems with this. And even this guy, Dominic Wilmot, who's done the best research on this, it's still volunteers because an actual jury it's not made up of volunteers. You have to go on a jury right. unless you can find a kind of excuse that you're going to go to an operation or you can't get out of your work for some big reason. You're not a volunteer, right? Whereas these are volunteers. They say, do you want to participate in this survey? And work by um, Cheryl Thomas, who's done the best work on this, she looked at and talked to actual jurors, right? Do people who had been in juries, not rape juries, but jurors in general. And then she did the same as what the, um, or similar to what some of the kind of feminist researchers have done and asked them these various questions. And she came to a very different country. She said, actually, hardly anybody believes in rape myths. Right? I've asked them similar questions. But the vast majority, and she says, perhaps one in a jury, right? perhaps one in a jury, you could say believes in rape myths. Right. So she's not saying there's not evidence of some uh, prejudices, but she's saying overall the vast, vast majority of people do not believe in rape myths. So this is a, the mock jury research is not reliable and doesn't seem to be applicable when you actually ask jurors themselves, yeah. real jurors, right, who've actually had to take this seriously take, but actually the experience of being a juror. And yet it's the uh, basis, and, so and yet it's it's being used as the basis to potentially make a seismic change in the law in Scotland and remove juries um, from, from, from rape trials. I mean, this is a huge story. It really is. And like you said, I mean, you've explained, I read your article today 
I mean, you make a very powerful argument that it's certainly not scientific, this uh, th- this method. And I like what you're saying about, right, so you might have the, myth, the person with the myth in the jury room afterwards deliberating who might say, drunk, completely reckless, blah, blah, blah. But then you might have two or three people there who might say, well, if your daughter was, you know, inebriated or she was paralytic drunk, wouldn't you like somebody to, to wouldn't you like some bloke to realise that she can't give consent and maybe the bloke should be seeing her home in a taxi and tucking her into bed and leaving her alone? You'd get that human discussion, deliberation, and the guy with the myth, or the woman with the myth might say, well, actually, when you put it like that, um, it makes perfect sense. So, so this is, yeah, this is, um, it's a big deal, this, isn't it, taking juries out of the it, whole it, process? It, 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 it is, but I mean, I, I don't know if you want to go into the um, the rape myth, um, the rape myth scales that they use, right? Because this is, I think, I'm most excited about this in terms of this is a kind of new finding uh, in my paper about this other dimension of what they do, because what they also do, they don't just get you to um, be on a mock jury and say, do you find them uh, guilty or not guilty? They then give you what's called a rape myth acceptance test, right? And this is a test to see if you're a bit rapey. Right. That's how it's kind of understood, right? Yeah. In, in, lay, in layman's terms, if that is such a word. Um, and originally, when they devised this test in 1980, so, so basically you've got, you've got these, say you've got 100 people, they've all looked at a mock, uh, a pretend case, and they've all decided innocent or guilty. Right. What they then do is they give them this test where they ask them about 30 questions to see if they've got dodgy attitudes. Now, this was devised in 1980. And at that time, in the main, not entirely, but in the main, the questions were quite overt, right? or a lot of them were. So, for example, the one that sticks in my head was there's this, there was this question that says, if a woman gets raped while hitchhiking, she deserves what she gets. Christ. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right? Christ. Now, that's my, that, that's my you kind of look at that and it's like, whoa, what sort of nutcase would yeah. I say yes? Yes. Question, Check, right? yes. This yeah. guy's got a serious problem. Right? Yeah. That's what I would think, right? Now, what then happened in the 90s is... The number of people who are who are failing this test, if you want to put it like that, is obviously declining. And some new feminists said, actually, we need to change the test because people now are more politically correct or they're more aware of what are the right answers. Right? So, so, so we can't trust their answers. answers. People are given, a, people yeah. are given uh, good answers because they're aware that you're not meant to say these things anymore. So they changed the test, right? And now, I mean, they always had some of these, so it was always a bit dodgy. So there, I'll read you these three statements, right? These are three statements in the most renowned uh, test that you get. Statement one, right? and, and this is, you've got, it's a scale of one to seven. One, um, it's, I completely disagree. 
and seven is I completely agree, right? So you give it one to seven. Statement one. When it comes to sexual contacts, uh, women expect men to take the lead, right? When it comes to sexual contacts, women expect men to take the lead. Now, I'll, I'll, before I go on any of the others, right? But just look, look at that, right? If you totally disagree with that, one, you're seen as being ethically good. If you say, yeah, that's true, say, say give it a seven or a six or a five, something like that, then you're ethically bad, right? But that is not a fact, right? We don't know. We don't know, no. How, no. how, to what extent women expect men to take the lead? If I was to ask you your experience, you might say, yes, generally that's true. If you were to ask me my experience, I would say, yes, that's generally true from my experience. Yeah, I would say, I yes, would it's say generally that. true. I would go along I, with that, yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't say it's an absolute thing. I wouldn't say it's black and white, you know, but I might answer that with a, a higher rather than a lower number. But that means you're, you're a problem, right? You are understood to be a problem because that is apparently not the correct answer, right, from a certain feminist perspective, right? Another one reads, uh, after a rape, women nowadays receive ample support, right? Also in Scotland, you know, I'm quite conscious that the government is quite uh, keen to give support. I'm aware that the police are quite keen to give support, that they've made domestic violence, one of their top five priorities, that they've got a, a committee on uh, uh, looking at misogyny, um, that there's rape victim support, that there's money, blah, blah, blah. So I, I might think, well, yeah, they, they, they do get quite a lot of support. So I might say, just, and it might just be factually true. But if I answer that, that's the wrong answer, right? So you start to see there's a huge, huge problem here. That's a big in problem, terms yeah. of, yeah. You know, in, in terms of how they then think that there is a, a, it is necessarily a problem. So there's a huge, huge issue with that dimension of it as well, right? Not just the methodology. But with something that is not, these questions are not factual. Most of them are kind of highly subjective. They are personal um, experience, of course. That's right. It would be my experience that, you know, and that, thinking of my friends, we've had these discussions before on radio shows going back years. I did nighttime radio. I would be inclined to say as a guest, yeah, the bloke, um, I would be inclined to say, yeah, I would imagine more than a fair share of women would expect the guy to make the advances when it comes to being amorous, you know, or whatever, yeah. But but the idea that that would somehow be, would, would, would somehow taint you then as a bloke, that you would be somehow deemed kind of unsuitable for, and then that this would be used then to determine that, well, look, we can't have juries now. That's, that is ridiculous, it is, but it's also not funny because it could lead to a huge change in the way the trials are, are held. I mean, that is mad stuff, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that is crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. And it gets better or worse. Because um, one of the things that I found, so this was the thing that I, I thought was most interesting and new, was that what was that, um, and hope, hopefully I can explain this clearly enough, but what, what they find is, so 
what, what the researchers do is they try to save people with high answers, i.e. dodgy people, are more likely to say not guilty. Right? And they do find some kind of relationship. Right? So, you know, that's not, that's not interesting. It's not, it doesn't, it's, it's arguably how clear it can be about what it's actually telling you when you look at nature of the the nature of the methods used for the mock jury. So, you know, but nevertheless, just as a piece of research, that's not uninteresting. But what they also find is that people who answer in a, in a particularly low, given all the correct answers, they're more likely to find the person guilty. Now, nothing's made because they think that's the right way to go, right? They want more people to be found guilty. They think that their questionnaire is finding people compared with bad people. So they don't then investigate this. But the rub or the big the, the issue here, right, if people are still following uh, where I'm going with this, yeah, the yeah. issue... Gripping stuff this, right, the, the issue is that that what they do in the mock jury experiment is they never give you enough evidence to clearly convict somebody, right? So if you imagine, me, you, 10 other people, we're doing a mock jury experiment and the CCTV footage of a guy dra dragging someone into a hotel, like by a hair or whatever, and you, then you look at it and, you, and so they say, guilty or not guilty, and, you know, with the, the testimony and all the rest of it, it's quite possible we're going to say, well, guilty, right? This, I think this is guilty. There's clear use of force. There's marks on the person. People heard us shouting, guilty, right? But they don't give you that evidence because that would be a waste of their time. What they do is they make the evidence ambiguous, right? So you don't, there's no clear external evidence that this actually happened. Right. And you then have to go by the testimony yeah. of the guy compared to the testimony of the woman. Now, and I asked this guy, uh, Dominic Wilmore, I emailed him, and I said, based on your research and all this other research, surely the right thing you should say in all of these cases is not guilty, because you've said yourself, the evidence there's no clear evidence, right? It's ambiguous. And if, if you're in a court of law, in a criminal court, it's not a balance of probability. It's beyond reasonable doubt. You have to be beyond reasonable doubt, and you start from a presumption of innocence. So in all of these mock jury experiments, everybody, based on that evidence, should be saying not guilty. But they don't, right? You get up to around 25% of people saying guilty. Right, and these are the same people who have got low scores, and part of what's basically happening is the people with low scores are said to have a, a, a strong empathy with the victim or victims of rape, right? And what we're actually seeing is that they are too empathetic, right? They're finding people guilty when there is not evidence of enough evidence of guilt.
And that's right? hugely. They should only find them not guilty. That's hugely right? ironic, isn't it? Because it's hugely, so, hugely ironic. Yeah. And what's really important about this, right? Just to finish, is that none of the researchers see anything about it because they don't care, right? They're not interested in objectivity and balance. They think more women uh, or more men should be found guilty of rape. Yeah. They think that people who uh, err on the side of hashtag believe the victim are good right, and ethical. And so what's staring them in the face, which is what their mock jury trials absolutely do show, is the potential of miscarriages of justice and men being found guilty right, without the evidence. They say nothing about it. <laughs> which demonstrates that the prejudice is actually theirs. They have a prejudice about the public, right? They think that you should kind of hashtag believe the victim. And the, so actually the whole thing's turned upside down. What we're looking at is academic researchers, and particularly feminist researchers, are biased and prejudiced and can't see in their own work that what they're demonstrating is a real problem that actually people might be empathizing too much and regardless of evidence, finding men guilty and having an increased number of miscarriages of justice. Without irrefutable evidence, because in reality, they're not really researchers. In reality, they have an end goal and the end goal is to take juries out of sexual assault and rape cases. That's their, obviously that's their um, state some of aim. Some of them. Some, some of them, them. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that, that, I mean, when I read that, that's absolutely amazing, really. Yeah, so the evidence presented should lead people there to say, not enough evidence there, so we'll give a not yeah. guilty. But the low yeah. scorers are going to find the guy guilty anyway. Uh, it's incredibly yeah. fascinating. And um, so, so d- d- will, will this pilot, Stuart, before I ask you about something else, because in the time we have left, I want to ask you about the BBC. Um, we might have a giggle about the BBC and its recruitment policies. I'm sure you've been reading the Telegraph today. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, will the so the pilot's going to happen. So some poor, maybe poor. I mean, some of these guys will be guilty, but some blokes are going to have no jury trials. When is this likely to happen? Ah, good question. Well, well they're trying to um, get it through uh, in this, you know, in this parliamentary session. So they're trying to get it through in the next few months. But I've no idea whether they're going to be able to do it because the defence lawyers are saying we, we won't, we won't do it. So yeah. if you can't get a defence lawyer into the court, then um, that it can't go ahead. So they're they're in a real bind. Of course, one of the ironies that, as always, Scottish Parliament always likes to say, "Oh yeah, we've consulted widely," which you know usually means they do a consultation process. We, we write in saying, no, it's rubbish. They ignore it. They get a committee together of like-minded people and then say, yeah, we've consulted widely. But obviously, if they haven't consulted that widely on this, if the whole of the, the legal profession in terms of defence lawyers are saying, actually, where we are going to refuse to uh, uh, play ball and we're not going to allow this it to It might happen. be dead in the water. So, yeah. yeah, so it, it could well be dead in the water. But... Um, I mean, the, the purpose, the reason that I wrote this research was because I am conscious that politicians increasingly try to avoid responsibility for setting out what they believe by saying the research says, right, evidence proves, right? And so they had been using this one woman in particular called Fiona Leverick, 
using her paper, which said there is overwhelming evidence that uh, people believe in rape myths, right? And that, you know, so juries are problematic, overwhelming evidence. And then time and time again, senior judges and politicians have used her evidence to say, look, all I'm doing is I'm going by the overwhelming evidence that this is a problem, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, I'll write for the same journal as she did, and I'll pick apart all of her arguments and prove that there isn't overwhelming evidence. Or perhaps there is, I'll look at it and see what, what, what I think. And of course, uh, my suspicions were all, uh, pretty much all proven to be correct. And not only is there not overwhelming evidence, but there is significant evidence that actually the prejudices are held by academics rather than the public. It's really good work, uh, pal. So, I, 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 I do mean that. Yeah. It's excellent work because it's such a serious concept, the idea that you could end up, you know, standing in front of a judge or two judges. Not, you know, we've we've understood, I'm 49 years of age. I, I love a legal thriller. I, I, I love reading about legal affairs and in the broadsheets, you know, our understanding of it all, jurisprudence is you get to stand in front of a jury of your peers and put your evidence against the state's evidence and you trust that, you know, a group of people, 12 people, can um, between them figure out what's what's going on and what isn't going on. So it's hugely important. Let me ask you, you've been listening to Dr. Stuart Waiton, by the way, criminologist, author, broadcaster. I'll put links on the podcast notes to where you'll find uh, Stuart. Tell me this... Um, it's funny and it isn't funny because it seems to be infecting public institutions as well as private institutions. So if you go for an interview at the BBC, you love your footy as I do. Um, I'm not enjoying my footy these days so much. Uh, I don't know about yours, but um, we love our footy. So you, Stuart Wade, and you're an articulate man. You've got a Geordie accent. I'm not saying you're a Geordie, by the way. You've got an accent from the North East, so you're very desirable, Stuart, these days. They don't want plastic paddies like me. They want these lovely northeastern accents. So they might say, right, Stuart, we've got a gig. We're going to send... So, so you go in and you say, right, I apply to be that on-the-spot reporter between three and five every Saturday. You'll send me everywhere. Hartlepool, Carlisle, you'll send me down the country. And every 10 minutes, Jeff Stelling will say, we're over to Stuart Way and what's going on, Stuart? So you apply for that job. And the first thing they're going to ask you is to explain what diversity and inclusion means to you. And not only that, Stuart, but if you get the job and we're going to send you to Ashton Gate, we're going to send you to Wimbledon, all over the place, um, will you promote, if you get that job, celebrate and encourage diversity and inclusion in your role? What's going on? <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? It's a bit ridiculous. Isn't well, it? Don't, don't, don't get me started because if you go and look at universities, and what the module, the degree courses that universities teach, what you are likely to find is that the person in charge of that degree has to fill out a form to say why this degree is uh, doing well and so on. And one of the questions they will be asked is, how does this degree help diversity, equality and inclusion? <laughs> right, so how... How does something, so as an academic, you are meant to ensure that when you design your curriculum, that you have in mind that you're encouraging diversity, uh, equality, and inclusion. How do you begin? Of course, you know, no one is against diversity of opinion. 
no one is against equality and no one thinks that people shouldn't be included in the loosest sense of the term. But of course, these, this is not what diversity, equality, inclusion means. It's much more ideological than that. It's much more critical race theory than that. It's much, it's much more problematic. So yeah, it's, it's becoming, I mean, it is like a state dogma um, that's been enforced through all institutions. That means that you have to see yourself through this new ideological prism. You have to justify your existence, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, like, you know, football commentator, what's that going to do with anything? <laughs> you know, madness. what's that going to do with diversity, equality, inclusion? I'm a football commentator, you know, it's like yeah. I'm talking about, you know, Man United winning for once or Sunderland, yeah. new manager being a clown or whatever it is, right? Yeah. What, what's that going to do with diversity, equality, inclusion? It's, how do know, I, how do I comment not, on it, that? How do I comment on that? And at the same time, how do I promote diversity and inclusion? Because that's what they're asking there. And I know quite a few people who do work for the BBC. Uh, one who recently left, but a couple of other guys who are still there, um, tearing their hair out. It's not just blokes either, it's women I know. And they're like, this is just, it's silly, it's insane. But it's also scary for them because the, the concern is, is that to raise the question, to raise the issue, might mean that you are, retaliation is a real issue. You know, you might end up being pushed further down the trough you might not get certain gigs you might eventually kind of be excluded if you want the final word on this you can have it we've only got 35 seconds left by the way Stuart Waite and our guest today fascinating that about rape trials in Scotland and and those mock trials uh, you'll find Stuart Scottish Union for Education Substack you'll find them there I'll put all these links on on um, on the podcast notes so final word for, for you mate um, will you be I mean are you long for academia with the way this tide is moving with all of this stuff. Uh, well, uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I've, I've continued to say what I think. I've continued to challenge these uh, issues and ideas. Um, I'm careful not to mention my particular university at times when terms of these things. And, yeah. Uh, but, you know, there, there, is, there is a problem uh, and quite a serious problem. Um, and I think it's very divisive. I think, you know, I think people will become concerned about who's getting employed. Are they employing people because they're the best person, or are they employing somebody because it takes the EDI framework? That is not a healthy place to be in, in my opinion. And there's been no public discussion about this. No. I mean, it seems like affirmative action, which you've had in America, and there's all sorts of problems with it. But this feels like affirmative action taking place in the UK. And as far as I can see, there has been no discussion about affirmative action and that you should employ certain types of people based on their uh, sex, colour of the skin or anything else, rather than on their merit. You might remember. It seems, seems a real problem. It is a problem. We'll talk about it in future programmes. No doubt we will. And you'll be writing about it on, on the Substack. Um, look, I, 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 it, it gives me belly laughs to this day that a diversity officer for the BBC, for the whole of the BBC, an African gentleman who didn't last very long. I'll never forget it as long as I live. One of the first observations he made in his post was that the BBC didn't have enough lesbians. And that's a fact. That's a, people can Google that. That's a statement. This is one of the things this guy realised. We don't have enough lesbians working at the BBC. Therefore, the content is somehow less, I don't know. It's not as good. Our output is not as good because we have a shortage of lesbians. Stuart, um, pleasure to chat with you, pal. Thanks for coming back on today and great work. Cheers.
Thanks, right. Stuart. Cheers, Great to have you on, pal. Uh, the great uh, Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD. Check him out online. I'll put the links, as I said, on the notes a bit later on. Lovely to have Stuart on the programme today. That is it for the show. Uh, thanks again to uh, Gerardo Colmon coming on the first hour from uh, from Paris. Lovely to have Gerard on. And to Stuart, as I've just said, back with you tomorrow. The Papers podcast will be online about 7.30am tomorrow morning. And I'm back with you tomorrow at 4 o'clock UK time with the Richie Allen Show for Wednesday. Until tomorrow, then from your BBG it's bye for now and I'm closing out today with the majestic Roger Daltrey and the who this is the seeker sure aren't we all seeking something 